Hi, I'm Gareth Kane. Welcome to the Net Zero Business Podcast. Okay, so today I'm talking to Annalisa Mills, the Managing Director of Smart Carbon, which is a carbon footprinting training, reporting and reduction consultancy firm that has its own calculation platform. Smart Carbon clients include many of the trusts of the UK's National Health Service, the bakery giant Greggs PLC and the British Engine Group. So welcome, Annalisa. Hi, Gareth. Thank you for having me on your podcast. (laughs) My pleasure, (laughs) because I've known and worked with you for years, which is why I invited you on. And I should really know the answer to this question. But when did you first get involved in sustainability? Well, we have known each other a long time. So, you you know, I've been involved in this sphere for a long time. Um, Yeah, that's that's quite an easy question to answer, because I think it's probably always been in me. I think I'm a bit of an eco geek. And by that, I don't mean that as a kid, I was a tree hugger or anything, but I I just always felt very passionate about the beauty of the world that we live in. And as corny as that sounds, whether it's David Attenborough programmes or nature programmes, I've always loved them. And I've just wanted to play a part in trying to protect that. But I suppose from a career perspective, I do distinctly remember an A-level essay which got me really on this path and yeah the A-level essay I remember the title was something along the lines of your the hypothesis of global warming as it was back then in the early 90s and you know what your personal view is I think it was probably 60-40 scientific position on that at the time so I don't know I mean I wasn't that massively academic but that essay really interested me and by the time I dug into it and done my own research I convinced myself that you know climate change what I convinced myself of the hypothesis basically and then really from there my my first degree was environmental management and I had brilliant teachers and just really fed the passion that I have and then really my you know I've always worked in the sector so I've always worked in environmental management sustainability now I'm very niche in carbon footprinting which I think just brings me back to that climate crisis you know concern that I've always had so so yeah that's what first got me started and keeps me here. (laughs) It must have been a very progressive uh, geography course because you know, 92 was the Earth Summit year. 1990 was Margaret Thatcher's speech to the, the UN Assembly, which was the first climate change speech by a, a world leader. So it was really only creeping onto the, the public radar then. That's a good point. I mean, I think it probably was 92 that I was doing A-level geography. And it's that old thing, isn't it, Gareth? You always hear about if you have a good teacher. Yeah. <laughs> that that sort of stays with you, and um, yeah, my my geography teacher was brilliant. I I just yeah. enjoyed those those lessons and the subject matter. And I suppose yeah, it would have been ninety. I started university in ninety three, so it would have been around about the Rio Earth Summit time. Um, and he was obviously caught up in all of that and and brought that into the classroom. So yeah. it wasn't even in the classroom. Like I said, it was when I was working on the essay and I was reading and researching for myself. I. I, I sort of came to my own conclusion about it at that point. <laughs> yeah. How did you progress after your degree then? 
So, well, I did my degree at Newcastle, <laughs> Northumbria University, which is why I still live in Newcastle. And, and I just love the place. And again, had some very, very inspiring lecturers there. So that really just, again, consolidated really what my, my passion was. have to say, I found it very hard to crack into the environment sector initially in terms of finding a, a career. And as we all did, I did a few other jobs and you know, whether it was in the recruitment sector or, you know, which were, I actually I learned a lot, you know, transferable skills, but I found I needed to do a master's. So I went back to university, went to Sunderland and did a master's in environmental management, still, you know, dedicated to that particular subject matter. So I think, and that, that to be honest, that made the world a difference. As soon as I had that master's, I had jobs to choose between. I mean, the the job space changes and obviously we're talking a good while ago now but I think doing that master's really was was the difference and at that point I took probably what that would have been about whenever we would have first met that was when I first took a job with a small firm called the environment practice yes um, and I joined as just a, a graduate graduate consultant and I was there for 11 years the company went through a lot of changes it changed to the environmental academy in that time and I, I sort of progressed up that so I was a, a director and a shareholder of that business so I was there for yeah over a decade. I was just wondering then whether you know you say the masters made the difference whether <laughs> you met the job market or the job market moved to meet you. Yeah that's interesting I don't know I know the other thing that really helped me was and it's actually going back to the degree at Northumbria University I set up a conservation club for students I mean we were all on an environmental course so it was quite easy just to ask you know my my peers on my course but we set up a club and we did things with the National Trust and we did weekends away we even did a, a conservation trip to Spain actually it was really interesting but that gave something on my CV and something to talk about in interviews that was beyond just the you know the qualifications so yeah. I think that combined with the masters are probably you know, sometimes I get asked to do presentations to, you know, students at university. And I would always recommend that getting experience and maybe setting up a club or doing something just outside of the, the everyday course. So, yeah, it all fell into place eventually. <laughs> yes. Interesting. I, I had a conservation step in my career as well. So, you know, MD of uh, Smart Carbon. Tell us about how Smart Carbon came about. Yeah, so after the, the the role I told you about with the Environment Practice slash Academy, where I was there quite 11 years, I went on maternity leave. And that's actually often a time of reflection, you know, when you just pause and you reflect. And I started to question how much impact that decade had had. I was very much in the space of ISO 14001 at that stage. And I was running a lot of training courses, which I enjoyed. And at that point, I decided, I think obviously being a new parent as well, focuses your mind a lot more on the future that, that your child is going to grow up in. And as I've already explained, you know, that was very much on my mind. So I changed career at that point. I joined a small farm in Annick who had a, a charity element called Carbon Fix It. And the MD there, Paul Thompson, was brilliant. I went for my interview and we just clicked and we had such a great conversation and, you know, we were on the same page with, with the climate crisis. And so I was so thrilled to get that job. And basically at that point, the company that um, employed me had already been acquired by a very large multinational firm called the Innovation Group. 
Mm-hmm. So I just became absorbed into that large organization. And actually, that's where Smart Carbon started. So my job title was um, Group Sustainability Manager. And it was a global company. There was offices in 14 different countries around the world. And that was 2013. So that was 10 years ago. And at that point, the mandatory greenhouse gas reporting regulations had just come out, making it a legal requirement for all listed companies and quoted companies. The largest ones had to publish their carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. So at that stage, I was tasked with doing that for the global operation. And we were really using a series of Excel spreadsheets as a lot of people start on the carbon footprint journey with Excel. And that was a bit of a minefield. And eventually, I just decided to build our own solution, working Mm -hmm. with the IT lead. Again, really fortunate, just that the, the guy that was the lead of IT there, Anthony, at the time was brilliant. And I explained what I needed it to do and we used the Excel that we were using and and he started to build the smart carbon platform and that enabled me to give a password to everybody in these 14 countries and a login and they could all input their own data and I coordinated that centrally and that meant that I could put together the you know the compliant information that needed to go into the annual report that would be published and we did at that point we brought in an external verifier well three years in we did and he verified three years worth of data and verified our process and our methodology and and the smart carbon platform Mm -hmm. so yeah that was all great the other thing that we did at that stage was we started to invite our suppliers to report their performance to us we ran a series of supplier workshops engagement workshops and as I say, this was 10 years ago, so it was it was picked up and showcased as best practice at the time. And yeah, it was all going great. And sort of the rug was pulled out from under me, Gareth, because Innovation Group were then acquired yeah. by the Carlisle Group, which is one of the top four you know, equity investment firms. Yeah. And even though the Carlisle Group have a very, very strong commitment to sustainability, and they're the chief sustainability officer, there was just large-scale restructuring of the whole of the innovation group and a lot of redundancies and unfortunately I was I was a victim of that restructuring along with my one sustainability officer I had had Liam working with me who was brilliant but thankfully he's bounced on to to something else he's doing extremely well in his career so um, at that point I just thought you know I've been doing this long enough I'm I'm going to set up by myself and I I negotiated as part of my part of my leaving I negotiated acquiring the the copyright ownership and the IP and yeah. the, the software contract for Smart Carbon, the platform, because actually they, in the time, they had just shelved it and it wasn't being used, which yes. I think because I'd invested so much into it, I couldn't let go of it. So, so that was really the start of things. And as you know, because you know we, we've known each other a long time, for a good few years there, I freelanced myself and I was True North Sustainability, but I always had the Smart Carbon platform as a tool. Mm-hmm. However... Yeah, business just grew and grew, and now we're a, a small and very fast-growing business. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about Excel, and I suspect Excel might still be one of your biggest competitors. But this ability of Smart Carbon to be able to gather data from all parts of the world for for large organisations and from the supply chain—that sounds like one of the one of the strengths of the system. Definitely. So, I mean, you mentioned in the introduction, one of our clients, British Engines Group, that's another example where they're a large group of eight businesses with 
you know, operations all over the world and to compile all that data in a format that's verifiable because they've all, we, we've been supporting them for a good few years. And again, they've brought in an independent verifier and it's all been signed off. So the, the verifiers love the platform because they can just log in and see all the information and the evidence there straight yeah. away. So, so it does make it easier. But I think other benefits are probably the fact that every year we upload the, the, um, the government factors. So in Excel, if you're uploading your formulas in the background, there's always that risk of, of error. And yeah. there's been quite a few companies that when we started working with them and picked up their Excel spreadsheets, you find the odd little bug in there that can have a, you know, a, a significant impact on the results. I suppose because the platform's evolved so much over the years, it's not just got the basic you know, the, the government factors on there. We've also got life cycle factors from EcoInvent database, and we've got the international factors from the International Energy Agency. So this pulls all of those factors and makes that multiplication exercise. I suppose people have more confidence in the in the um, accuracy of the, the output. So as well as the sort of budget yourself, Excel people, yeah. uh, is it a crowded marketplace with other uh, carbon calculators? <laughs> Oh my goodness, Gareth. It's so crowded. It's unbelievable. It's like a new carbon calculator pops up every week. I can't keep track of the names of them all. It's a very, very fast growing space. And I feel like we were one of the earliest into the space. There was only yeah. a handful. You know, I knew who the other calculators were. And at that stage, they were very expensive, you know, and we have always aimed to be a, a cost efficient solution for people. I'm not there to put any barriers in anybody's way to reducing their carbon footprint. Come yeah. back to you know, our first question on this. But yeah, there, there are a lot, a lot of competitors of all sizes. As I say, some of them don't have platforms. Some of them rely on we'll do the calculation for the company, yeah. but quite a few of them have some form of software calculator as well, varying elements of the journey. So, yeah. <laughs> so how do you comp compete in that space then if it's a, a crowded marketplace? I don't know. I haven't actively, this might sound quite naive, I haven't actively kept a close watch on all of the competitors or tried to, to compete. I think that the smart carbon platform has grown organically over a decade based on feedback from my clients and what they need it to do. And I was very fortunate. The guy I said that, that built it originally at Innovation Group also was made redundant and also set up his own IT firm. And he worked with me. Um, so he's, he's just a genius. So I've been very fortunate that I've been able to evolve it that way. I think we've been around a long time and we've evolved it slowly and in response to what people have needed. And as I've already mentioned, you know, we've kept our prices about half of the price of anything else. But I don't think we also have different price options for different size clients. So we can yeah. have like a micro business or we talked a lot about large multinationals, but we have a lot of small and medium and SMEs and micro businesses as well, particularly those in supply chains to NHS trusts or local authorities, for instance. So, but I mean, price is never going to be the thing that that that's you've got to have a good product, haven't you? So yeah. I think I think what separates us or differentiates us is probably our approach. I've always felt quite strongly that. Our clients shouldn't be dependent on a consultant. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, we're, we're there to help them. And, and sometimes it's a capacity issue and they just want to outsource a problem. And yes, we'll we'll help them do the sums. But in the long term, I don't think they should feel they have to keep coming back year after year for the next annual report. So the model we've developed, we've got a five-step model for our clients and we, we encourage them to start with a two-day training course. So we run a course at Northumbria University and it's accredited by the university and also IEMA, which is mm-hmm. the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. As you know, we're both both members of IEMA, but um, both fellows. We are both fellows. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I work with IEMA to accredit the course, and it's the yeah. only a co-accredited university and IEMA co-accredited course in carbon footprinting methodology. So they have some off-the-shelf like net zero courses and so on, but that doesn't necessarily tell you the nuts and bolts of how to do the calculation exercise. Mm -hmm. So we encourage, I mean, our clients don't have to follow these steps, but we do encourage them to spend two days on the training, then they get the certificate, then they've got the knowledge and the skills and that really speeds up the consultancy process because then we come in and engage with them and they they know what it is we're you know we're collectively trying to achieve mm-hmm. so that hopefully means that the support they need from us is is minimal and uh, so we provide the training the support and then obviously the tools in the form of the platform so that they can that they can do that exercise of gathering their data measuring their impact establishing a, a baseline or a base year but we also help them beyond that. We'll help them set a net zero target. If they want that to be a science-based target approved or a Tyndall approved, we can you know, support with that as well and just support them through that journey. As I yeah. said, there are five steps. So we will also help them scenario plan and produce a, a, a net zero decarbonization plan or carbon reduction plan. Um, and that's a new module that we've just embedded into the platform as well. So you can play around with interim targets and long-term targets and different emission sources and see what's achievable. It's always a challenge, as you know. Yes. Um, and I think another thing that probably helps us in the marketplace is that the platform has a series of dashboard functions. And what that enables our clients to do is to connect to other clients. So that might be a traditional supply chain model where you've got, uh, you know, we work with a lot of NHS trusts that are asking their suppliers to report into them with their, their carbon footprint because that's their scope three or in the NHS they call it footprint plus, that's the scope three impact, the, the um, emissions associated with purchase goods and services. But the dashboard also works, you were mentioning you've worked with a lot of construction companies, so an example is something like Constructing Excellence Northeast. Mm-hmm. They've got a membership dashboard. And so all the construction companies in the Northeast sector are reporting in, which gives us, they've got a project that they're leading on decarbonizing the construction sector. It gives a really good overview of the of the sector. So those are some of the things that I think are are different about our calculator as opposed to, to others. So if we could dig into the carbon footprinting process yeah um a little bit well if we start maybe you could explain what your sort of definition of a carbon footprint would be yeah okay well i would just take the textbook definition from the greenhouse gas protocol everything we do is based on the greenhouse gas protocol because that is the most widely 
adopted framework for measuring and reporting your carbon footprint. Some of our clients want to follow other frameworks like PAS 2060 or ISO 14064 Part 1. And, you know, that's fine. Or, you know, we can comply with any of those approaches. But the greenhouse gas protocol is, is the, you know, the most widely adopted. And that defines a carbon footprint as the total greenhouse gas emissions associated with a product, a service, or an organisation, and it's expressed as tons of carbon equivalent. So you can tell I, I know that off by heart because because <laughs> I teach the course, and it's you know something that I've repeated multiple times. But it's a good definition because if you break it down, you can see so a total set of greenhouse gases. It's not actually just carbon. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. we engage with clients and they've got some work on an Excel spreadsheet and they've used the factor to calculate carbon. And that's the wrong set of factors. Yes. Because, you know, you've a basket of gases. I mean, I know you you know this, Gareth, but <laughs> they all have different global warming potentials. Mm-hmm. So if you take something like methane, that it has a 28 times higher um, capacity of holding heat in the atmosphere than carbon. Yeah. So if you've got something like driving a diesel vehicle, you'll have some carbon, some methane, some you know particulate matter. You'll have a range of emissions and you need that collective impact, not just the carbon component of that. So that's how you end up with a, a CO2E, which is a carbon dioxide equivalent. Yeah. So a carbon footprint is a carbon equivalent footprint. And, and as the definition says, it can be for an organisation. It could be for a product. It could be your, your personal footprint. Yeah. So companies like the World Wildlife Fund, they do, um, you know, a personal carbon calculator. It'll ask you questions like where you buy your shopping and where you go on holiday and what type of car you drive. But that's your individual footprint. You can do that for a business or you could do it for a product. So you could take, for instance, this laptop that we're talking on. What's the carbon footprint of that product or what's the carbon footprint of the company that produced the product? Those are two different approaches. We actually yeah. help companies with both because we've got clients that, you know, have different needs in that in that area. I'm quite intrigued by the word total in there because yes. that's the theoretical definition, but in practice, you never mm-hmm. get to the total because you'd be, yeah, it would be an infinitely long job trying um, to trace every last molecule of yeah. carbon dioxide. Um, yes. I know enough about carbon footprinting that setting the, the scope of the study is critical in yeah. terms of getting the right balance between being representative of your carbon footprint and the practicality of gathering all that data. Yeah. So how do you go about setting that scope? Now, that is a good question. And you're right. It, it's once you scratch the surface of this task, you could fall down a very big, big hole because <laughs> there is so much, as you as you pointed out. And often I find clients underestimate the complexity of it when they set out on this process. So you're right, you've got to set that scope. It's the sort of thing that is that we teach on the course. We make sure that clients understand about setting the boundary. So are they going to take a, an approach which follows a financial control approach or an operational control approach or an equity share approach? So if you've got a complex company with operations all over the world and they own 40% of one and 60% of another, are they going to have carbon? Are they going to report from each trading entity? You've got to come up with a, an approach to set a boundary around that. 
Mm. And then once you've done that, you need to decide, well, what emissions within that boundary we're going to report. Now, the greenhouse gas protocol breaks it down into the, the language that's used in scope one, scope two and scope three. And essentially your scope one is any direct emissions. So if you've got a CHP plant on your site and you're generating your own energy, those are your emissions. If you've got um, a, a fleet of aeroplanes, they're your emissions or just a fleet of you know delivery vehicles. So it's it's generally expected that you'll at least include all your scope one direct emissions along with scope two, which is anything that you import in the form of energy, which is typically just your grid electricity, but in some complex organisations, it might be importing steam or heating or cooling. Um, and that's really your absolute bare minimum. But I think for a lot of clients, they find themselves starting this journey for a reason. So we establish what that reason is. And if it's a compliance reason, then for instance, if it's SECR, streamlined energy and carbon for large businesses, then they also have to include business travel. If it's that they're reporting because they want to comply with PPN 0621, which is a public procurement notice for supply chains in the public sector, if, they re if they're supplying into the NHS or the local authority or any public sector, then they've got to include five additional scope three categories, and those are specified or it might be stakeholder expectations. But the Greenhouse Gas Protocol has five underpinning principles, and they are always my point of reference. Mm -hmm. And um, we call it helping keep our organisations on track because the, the five principles, that's the acronym um, when we've re reordered it. So you want transparency. So you want to say what is included, what's excluded, and so mm -hmm. a reader knows. You want to include what's relevant. So that means if supply chains 99% of your impact, you can't just ignore it then. You know, what, yeah. what's the most relevant emissions? Um, you then want the most accurate picture as possible, and you want it to be as complete as possible, which I suppose links to that word total that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, you want a consistent methodology that allows you to compare over time, because the whole point of this exercise is to track your progress in reducing your emissions over time. So that's a very long answer to your question. What I would say is there's no one answer because you would each client would pick a different boundary. Yeah. What's the fifth one then? Track. See, so there was transparent, relevant, accurate, complete and consistent. Oh, right. Uh, complete and consistent. Consistent with a game. <laughs> no track we spell it with two c's <laughs> so uh, that's our little uh yeah oh no that's uh, uh we use <laughs> yes i think that's a, that's a fantastic one yeah and, me and my team came up with that he uh he it's a good one though <laughs> yes and what do you do if you if you're struggling to find you know say you have a piece of data you're trying to find that you know will be relevant but it's yeah. difficult to get hold of how do you manage that data availability? Yeah, again, really good question and a very common challenge. Again, like just picking up on that track acronym, you're often trading off and balancing. So you're often balancing your completeness and your accuracy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> data can be a challenge and that's what we do help clients with. But a typical example might be, let's say a client 
rent their office premises from a landlord and their electricity bills, they don't see them directly. It's wrapped up in the in the fee. Mm. How do they report their energy consumption? That would be you know, an example. I mean, it's clearly relevant that they include it and for completeness they'll want to, but for accuracy, they've got a, a challenge there. Mm-hmm. So it might be a case of actually talking to the landlord and being really clear about why you want the information. You're not querying the bills. It's that you, you're wanting to produce a carbon carbon impact assessment, carbon footprint, or if not, then, you know, we can help with proxy data. So there's always options to estimate, extrapolate. The other thing under the the greenhouse gas protocol is it does say when you produce your report at the end, you actually have to list your estimations and your assumptions along with Mm -hmm. any methodology, as well as state any omissions or exclusions and justify why. Mm -hmm. So there's always a way to do this in a in a sensible manner, yeah. So if you're transparent about it, would you say that completeness trumps accuracy? You know, is it is it better to have a a sort of ballpark figure in there rather than have no figure at all? Yeah, I don't think there's a definite black and white answer. I'd say in most cases, I would probably say it does. I mean, a good example again would be supply chain. There's probably that's probably the least accurate of all of the uh, scope three. When you look at somebody's supply chain, they're probably typically 70 to 90 percent will be the purchase goods and services that they buy. But how accurate that is, that is a real challenge. Um, and actually, my favorite challenge in uh, carbon footprinting. I told you I was a bit of a geek, but that's my favorite <laughs> one in the, in the supply chain challenge because I just think that's where you can have the most impact. So I would say, rather than just exclude it because we can't do it accurately, I would say completeness is 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 better there. It, again, I would go back to well, what's relevant? What are your stakeholders expecting to see? And yeah. if you can't get accurate data, can you put in an assumption and just transparently explain that why you put in an assumption? Also, all of our clients have a continual improvement action plan. So year on year, you're going to get better at this which makes makes clients nervous because then they think, well, won't our footprint get bigger each year? Is it going to just keep ballooning as we get better at measuring? Um, Which is a risk. But what you're allowed to do under the Greenhouse Gas Protocol is you're allowed to re-baseline your your base year to recalculate. So if you find your accuracy of method improves, you can go back and and, and then reflect that in your base year so you can still track your, your trend. Yes. And obviously, we've got a problem with base years at the minute because with the COVID pandemic, everything changed rapidly and then nothing quite returned to normal. So is that is that a challenge is sort of trying to be able to compare apples with apples pre and post COVID? Yeah, definitely. I would say a lot of our clients will have base years going back as far as something like 2009. But what I tend to find is over a period of time, they just scrap that and start again because what they were doing in 2009 maybe wasn't the most, um, it was probably fit for purpose at the time, but now the practice of carbon reporting has evolved so much that what they're they're comparing to isn't really meaningful. Mm -hmm. So you can restate your base year all over again. Um, I mean, Newcastle Hospitals would be an example where we did this and they had a 2009 base year. And that was great. And we reported out, you know, there was annual reports and performance, but we restated that base year as 2019. 
And I think 2019 is the most common base year selected because of the pandemic issue that you've, you've talked about, because yeah. you've just got that free pandemic snapshot of time. Mm-hmm. And what I find it really useful is you've then got the pandemic year to show that a reduction is possible and it helps them highlight, are you slipping back to business as usual or have yeah. you embedded any of those improvements in? So mm-hmm. typically, Every case is different, but typically I'd say 2019 is an ideal base year. Yes. Maybe we shouldn't go down that rabbit hole too much further. We'll start <laughs> triggering the conspiracy theorists. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> We've covered a lot of t- technical ground there, but I'd like to finish up by maybe going back to, to, to some personal issues. You've spoken publicly in the past about eco-anxiety, mm. and this has hit the press recently and not always in a very sympathetic way. There was one headline about, quote, eco-yobs and some of the protest groups getting counselling for for eco-anxiety, which I thought was a very very crude way of putting it, uh, yeah. trying to present everybody as an eco-yob. But perhaps you could, you could tell us your experiences. Yeah, we've talked about this before, Gareth, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. I actually think it is important to talk about it. Mm. It is something that has affected me for a long time, I would say a good 20, 25 years. It's affected me really significantly. Before it had a label, it wasn't called eco-anxiety in those days. I was just thinking that I was losing my mind. <laughs> but um, turns out there's a label and it's okay. I'm able to talk about it more now than I was in the past. And I think it probably was at its height when I became a new parent as well. Mm. And I think probably that coincided well, that was a couple of years before COP21 and the Paris Agreement in 2015, which I just saw as the biggest greenwash disaster I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people feel differently, and you've asked me for my personal opinion yeah. here, Gareth. I do really struggle with the lack of progress on the ever-growing emergency seems you put the word climate in front of it and the word emergency is diluted somehow like people don't seem to receive it as an emergency and I think if you work in this field it can be very well it's it's very grueling And, and I don't say that lightly because as you know I do a lot of work in the NHS and 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 I always you know, I've, I've seen them work through the pandemic and I'm in awe. My best friend's a, a paramedic. I'm in awe. And I know that a lot of um, career choices have, you know, big stresses on your mental health. But for me, I have really struggled with it. And I think the constant bombardment of the climate science, which unfortunately tells a very sorry tale, yeah. is constantly more and more alarming. That does affect me and I've spoken to a lot of people spoken to a lot of colleagues you and I've had good frank conversations about this lots of of other colleagues in the in the sector as well which I find helpful and I I even have a discussion as part of the you know as part of my lesson plan on the course at the university as well and you'd be surprised how many people actually open up in that and say yes I you know this this does trouble me as well and I know doom and gloom doesn't necessarily help with progress, so I don't. I try not to dwell on it, and I, I yeah. don't have all the answers. But I think, you know, I stay in this field because I want to be able to look my kids in the eye and say, "I tried to do my bits." Yes. Um, 
And when I think about, you know, where the opportunity is for change, because there just has to be change, I feel like the climate crisis is thrown around like a hot potato between three three parties. You've got you've got the politicians and the world leaders and you know the COP process that we've just touched on. Then you've got everyday folk and civil society beaten down and feeling guilty about going on a holiday. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the business sector. And yes, you know, that's a that's a very big sector, and there's a lot of the impact has been driven by that sector. But I actually am heartened by fact that I see, not everybody, but I see a lot of organisations just stepping up to that challenge. Um, You'll see it yourself, Gareth. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've talked before about how this is becoming more of a C-suite discussion than it was maybe when we started out in this sector. And I just take a little heart in the fact that the business sector seemed to be able to take the bull by the horns, set a net zero target, measure their performance, reduce it and do something so yeah um, and I, I just wonder if um those that are brave enough to transition away from business as usual I see that as a shrewd business practice actually and um, you know building resilience for those organizations but also then everybody can learn from that and I, I just hope that the momentum builds and that the transition for change can can speed up to match yeah. the, the change within within the speed that it's happening in the in the climate well they say that change tends to happen very slowly and then it happens very quickly and um i think we're we're all waiting for the quick bit (laughs) Uh, or or working i suppose we should say towards getting the quick bit to happen a bit faster (laughs) yeah so that's i i think that was very interesting and we can't hide from the science the science is the science but i i do worry sometimes that some people get a little bit almost obsessed with the staring at the headlights speeding towards them like a you know like a rabbit on the on the road at night and, and there's those who just ignore the headlights and there's those who just stare at them i suppose there's those of us who decide the best thing to do is hop out of the way we can't hop out of the way in this one though Gary. We can't <laughs> hop, hop into the driving seat and do something <laughs> yes i think my analogy wasn't yeah. best the rabbit but, need to shoot out the tires of the, of the <laughs> unrushing car we i do feel times like a rabbit in a headlight but I refuse to be paralysed by it. Yeah, um, yeah I, I do take some encouragement from some of the clients that we work with and some of the really exciting things that they have either already done or have mm-hmm. planned. When I see them set an ambitious target that they understand, <laughs> I've gone to see clients who have, you know, we'll be net zero by 2027, but they haven't thought about what that actually means. They just picked a year that was earlier than everybody else. But when I when I see a client that has a meaningful target that they understand, and then they've got a an exciting decarbonisation plan, I yeah. really feel like there's meaningful action happening, and that's what it's about, really. Excellent. Well, I think we better wrap up. So, thank you very much for that, Annalisa. We've covered a yeah. huge amount of ground. We went into quite a lot of depth on carbon footprinting, discussing about you know your experience as a as a green entrepreneur launching and and uh and marketing a green product service and then obviously the very real issue of eco-anxiety and and how to manage it despite my terrible analogies (laughs) can i just finish by saying that if i need a carbon footprint done for a client annalise is the first person i call so if anybody listening or watching this needs a carbon footprint the the smart carbon link is in the notes below thank you very much annalisa
Thank you, Gareth. Always good to chat. Thank you very much. Cheers. If you find this episode of the podcast interesting, please do me two wee favours. First of all, give it a five-star rating to help others find it as well. And secondly, subscribe via your usual podcast provider so you'll get every episode into the future. Until next time, goodbye.